So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Want to sign up? I don't have an email. Don't send anything to me to my email because I don't even know how to open it. And I mean, I, I, I feel, you know, very close to it because I was helping my grandmother and grandfather, you know, with their internet and things like that. So we're trying to figure out what people like and how people like to act. And, you know, we'll we'll give you the options. If you want to sign up over the phone, you want to call yeah. us and sign up over the phone, that's okay. You want to sign up online yourself, that's also fine. You want us to send you a letter, that's also okay. We're trying to be open and kind of more tailored. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Aviv Shalgi. Uh, Aviv, tell us tell us about the world of solar. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jess. Very happy to be here. Well, the world of solar is is you know fascinating. The the technology has advanced so much in the last you know decade or two, and I believe we got to this tipping point where solar as as an energy, not specifically solar panels on your roof is a much more affordable, you know, cheaper to generate form of energy versus some of the other things that we've gotten to know, coal, all sorts of oils, natural gas, wind, things like that. So I believe it's definitely going to be, you know, the next big, the next biggest thing, definitely in the US, but, you know, worldwide. And I'm happy to, to share a little bit more about we, what we do in solar specifically. Yeah, well, when your people reached out, I was really interested to have you on. You know, we we produced that podcast for, for Bloomberg I was telling you about on renewable energy. And, you know, I've been, I was a Bloomberg Renewable Energy, their, their new energy finance division. I was a client 10 years ago and we were running our energy focused investment fund. And the thing that was so interesting to me back then was seeing the, the cost curve on solar just dropping like a rock. And like, yeah. you know, you just thought, man, if this continues, this is going to be way more cost effective. This is going to be like the most cost effective way to produce electricity out of anything. Right. Seems like it's getting closer. It's, it's definitely getting closer. I don't believe that it's the cheapest form of energy in the world, but it's definitely the cleanest, I believe. And, and maybe you can argue about nuclear that, you know, some, some people in the industry think it's the cleanest and others are a little bit afraid of it. But in terms of, you know, repercussions for the world of generating the solar panels and a lot of different problems that different people, you know, bring up to the discussion, it's the same thing for everybody. You know, if you talk about wind or hydro or natural gas or coal or anything else, everything has some repercussions. Nothing is purely, purely 100% green. But with solar, I mean, the sun is already there and this energy is being produced whether we'd like it or not. But 
if you think about technologies that have been around 50, 60, 70 years ago in other parts of the world, you had water heaters on people's rooftops just because the sun was heating it. So instead of, you know, you using natural gas in order to heat your water for your shower in the evening, you know, people were already using the sun. So, you know, I think we got to a point where we know efficiently and cost effectively how to produce this energy. Let's do it. But I personally think we need to do it at a much larger, more massive scale. Panels on your roof, it's awesome if you can afford it, if you own the roof. But, you know, as a nation, if we want to, you know, drive renewables, let's take places in the middle of the desert or, you know, remote places in rural areas that are not being used for farmland or, you know, highways or something like that. And let's build those power plants. Let's use that empty space to get cleaner air, better environment for all of us. So, so tell people, you know, there's a lot of folks in solar these days. Tell us what you guys are doing different at, at your company. Sure. So my company is called Solar Simplified. I'm fairly young. We're less than one year old. And we're basically trying to kind of, let's say, disrupt the world of how solar energy and renewable energy in general is being sold and marketed across the U.S. If, you know, for the people who are a little bit more knowledgeable into, into the weeds of this industry, most of the renewables today are not being sold to you and me as consumers um, or renters or homeowners. It's being sold to corporations that can afford to buy such large quantities of energy. But the price has been going down tremendously. So what we're basically saying, we're going to developers telling them, oh, you're building a new solar power plant in, let's say, somewhere in Illinois, which is where I'm at. I'm in Chicago. How about instead of selling it to a corporation or to a factory nearby, how about you sell it to 1,000 households in our area or 10,000 households, depending how big they are? But our solution, instead of complicating people, kilowatt hours and panels and shares and things like that, we're simplifying this process. We're saying the power plant generated X amount of money this month. And instead of you seeing this in some weird form on your bill, it just looks like a gift card or a coupon. So you owe, let's say this month, a $200 bill to your local utility. Well, instead of $200, you're going to see a discount because our energy, solar energy, is cheaper to produce than the regular energy that you're consuming. So you'll see $200 minus, let's say, a 10% discount, which is what we're giving in most of our locations. Oh, you just need to pay 180 instead of 200. Why not? And so let's say I'm in upstate New York or New Jersey, one of the places where you guys are already. How, how do I sign up? What does that process look like? How does this work? It's very simple. You go on solarsimplify.com. There's a sign up button. All we need is a little bit of your details, phone number, email, the way for us to, you know, to get in contact with you. Sign up takes about two, three minutes. We just need to make sure that you give us your account number of your utility so that we can cross-reference that you're actually who you say you are. Once we get your details, your account number, we cross-reference those and you approve that you want to sign up for this, we'll do everything in the background to get you set up. So as long as you keep paying your bills, you'll see the discount. And, and this is a program that we've been running with the local governments, still not on a federal, you know, national scale but with the New York government, New Jersey government, et cetera, to, to make sure because they want to incentivize this as well. They want to get cleaner air for their constituents, but they also want to create jobs. You know, they, they, every solar power plant that is being built, you have engineers working on it, you have technicians, you have operation people, you have a lot of back office folks that need to work on this. So 
it's not just that it's you know generating savings for consumers it's also creating more jobs locally because you can't transfer solar energy from texas to new york just doesn't happen nobody knows how to do that at least not not today but we do know how to transfer it 100 200 300 miles away so you know you're helping your economy you're helping your environment and you're saving money in the process there it's really a no brainer in my mind so to me what i think is great about that is you know this idea of like just showing up from a consumer aspect of showing up just on the dollars hey yeah. you like where whatever you believe about global warming or whatever your politics are whatever People are very polarized, different directions on that, right? Right. Either way, either way, this just saves money. I mean, that's right. such a great way to cut through. So my question for you is, is on the business side. Tell us about this setup of like, you worked deals with the utilities, the developers, the marketing, the state. What, what did organizing all that web look like? Well, it's a mess. That's why there aren't a lot of competitors in this market, if any. But, but just to kind of piggyback on your previous point, that's exactly the reason why we started the company. We started the company last summer, the midst of COVID. A lot of people are you know, furloughed or being asked to work from home. A lot of jobs are unfortunately temporarily disappearing. And so, you know, this idea came to me and my partners of saying, well, how can we, how can we save people some money? And the, the renewable side, the green side came, you know, as, as the means that we can help people save money through. Now, the, the, now, all of this organization behind the scenes is mostly done by our technology. So we're developing something in-house that does this connection and making sure there's this synchronicity between the developers who are building these solar power plants. And that's their job. They don't know how to do sales and marketing and customer relationships and things of that nature. And they don't want to deal with it either, even if, even if they could. So how do we connect them, the consumer and the utility together in some sort of form of a triangle where we're in the middle, we're making sure that the data is correct. There's no problems on your bill. Everything is going to appear on time as the solar energy is being generated, but also making it fairly simple. So, you know, we have calls with the regulators of each and every state we're in and, you know, new states that we're trying to get into to convince them that even though energy has been such a, such a strange and convoluted market, people don't really want to understand their energy. They want to see their bill. They want to pay it. And they want to make sure, you know, their lights turn on when they click the button, they flip the switch. It shouldn't be this hard. We can make this easier and more accessible to consumers to understand what they're getting themselves into so that, first of all, they don't get scammed. You know, they know what, what they're buying. And secondly, if they understand, they're also understanding the implications of their decisions. They understand that if they want to support green, is this actually green or is it just a marketing buzzword? So it's, it's just a lot about simplifying the process. This is a yeah, very so archaic industry. Sure. So let's talk about it. So... Do you guys own any of the farms yourself or you're only working with other developers? No, no. we only currently we only work with other developers, maybe yeah. in the future. Sure. So <laughs> so tell us what this looks like. What did you did you have to negotiate with the utilities? Did you what did that actually look like from a business perspective? So it's not all about negotiation. It's it's more about persuasion. It's not all about a give and take because all of us, let's say excluding the state of Texas, which is doesn't have a, a, a utility the same way that all of the other states do. In each and every location, there's a utility and they control the wires. Like they actually physically connect your house. With them, it's more about persuading them that this is a good solution that they should provide to their consumers. In some places, we're able to come through the regulator, you know, whether it's you know, the joint utilities or, you know, you know, some form of, of, of a regulator in energy or consumer related 
that says, I think this is a good thing to do. Let's have a three-way discussion. Where in other places, you know, we reach out to the utility and try to, to, to figure it out ourselves. The utility doesn't have to do anything unless the regulator tells them to. That's the whole point of being a monopoly. But I believe at least some of the utilities that we've been in contact in places that we've been active, the utilities are extremely, extremely favorable of this because apart from a little bit of backend work, it doesn't cost them any money. It doesn't cause them any headaches. It's just connecting a few dots, making sure that the people that we tell them, hey, they're connected to us, put this on their bill. That's all that needs to get done. And this is, you know, a very simple technology that already, it already exists in most of the utilities for other aspects, whether it's, you know, deregulated markets where you can choose a supplier of energy. So they already have most of the technology in hand. It's just about persuading them or the regulator, most of the time, both that this is a good thing to offer people and not just keep it in the hands of, you know, businesses and corporations. So what's the, when you think about the what's in it for them factor, I'm guessing for the developer, it's that they get to sell some electricity for the, right. for the regulator, it's they get to meet these political goals that, you know, and the, the get the optics of serving their uh, constituents. Right. What's in it for the utility? So the utilities at the end, I believe they know that they're very archaic. But they also know that the customer can't go anywhere unless they move out to another utility. So in my mind, many utilities are starting to understand that it's not just about, you know, the fact that they're stuck, like the customer's stuck with them, but they also want to give out, you know, a good impression and a good service and make sure they're advancing their technologies. You can, you know, pay online and you can set up auto payment and things that didn't exist 10 years ago, you know, 15 years ago, some places that didn't exist five years ago. So they do understand they want to move forward. Otherwise, there'll be a point where the regulator will say, shame on you. Now you have to do it. And now they're, you know, if the regulator comes in, there's a time crunch, you know, there's complaints and, and things don't go as well as whether you just push it yourself. So for the utilities, it's a matter of innovation doesn't cost them any money. It, it, it takes a little bit of effort just to make sure that, you know, the technologies are being connected correctly, but everything flows through them. So as long as they don't care, they don't get paid, but it doesn't hit their revenue either. Why not? When you say it doesn't hit the revenue, what, isn't this electricity they're not getting paid to produce? Yes, but if you think about it, a lot of the utilities have been publicly saying as well that they have two businesses or two business units under one roof. There's the generation side, which some utilities, they want to deal with that. But other utilities, they don't want to deal with generation. They want to deal with, you know, the distribution, the wires, the meters, you know, the billing, things of that nature. They don't want to start building solar power plants and hydro and wind and things like that. It's a deregulated market in some states, you know, about half of our countries deregulated. They're saying, I'm here to make sure the electrons are flowing to wherever they need to go. If the government now wants to push wind, good for them. They can find business partners or companies to build a new wind farm, you know. So especially for those utilities, it doesn't come out of their pockets. And in many cases, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but, you know, many cases across the world, not just even the U.S., the utility gets paid regardless. They get paid because they're servicing the constituents or the people who live in their area. They don't actually make the revenue necessarily from your bill. They get paid by the government for doing this service. So it obviously depends on their geography and where you're located. But in many places, it doesn't hurt them. It actually helps them because instead of them needing or being forced to build, let's say, a solar power plant, well, 
They just told the government to go find somebody who wants to do it. And, you know, they, they, they don't have to do it anymore because there's somebody else to step into their shoes. Sure. So being a newer player in the space, what are some tips that you have for how just lessons you've learned of how to get developers to take you serious, how to get regulators to take you serious, how to get utilities to take you serious? I mean, I, th- I think the first thing is you have to really come with a substantiated, almost proven business model. Like you need to show something that, that's innovative and helps everybody. In our case, developers make more money by selling at retail cost versus wholesale cost. It's, you know, it's a traditional business model that exists with Walmart, Mariano, Safeway, any place, Target, any place that sells you, you know, goods and services. You know, they buy something at wholesale price, they, up, you know, mark it up, and then they sell it to you for retail price. It's the same thing here. Developers, you know, with our offering are now able to sell at a much higher price, but the consumer actually gets a discount. You don't usually come across a lot of solutions that nobody has to pay more, but everybody makes more money. It's an anomaly in the market just because it's a very archaic and old-fashioned market. So at least for us, and I I can't speak for other companies, it it was kind of a no-brainer. There's this anomaly in the market where nobody pays for something, but everybody can make money. doesn't happen quite often. And so when we came to developers and told them, this is the offering, you know, obviously everybody was skeptic, but once you dive into the details, people understand. And, you know, I can share, this is my third startup after two successful ones, all of them extremely data-driven and with some you know, machine learning in the back end. The idea here is to do the same thing. You still need to figure out which people you need to reach out to, how to underwrite them, how to make sure they're going to pay on time. Because developers don't want to bear that risk. They don't want to take the chances of, you know, John Smith in middle of nowhere, rural, pick a state is not going to pay his bill because nobody's going to come after you for 20 bucks. But we have to make sure we're getting the right people, people who want to save money, people who want to continue paying their bills and don't have a problem paying their bills to go through this. And so now it becomes a no-brainer if we're kind of combining these two technologies together. That's great. Well, and and tell us a little bit about uh, your previous two companies. Sure. So I used to be an electrical engineer way back when. And I decided to transition over to the business side because it appealed to me much more. So my first startup was back in Israel. I was one of the first employees in a startup called Taptica, which did machine learning-based behavioral targeting of advertisements. So instead of, you know, pick a company, some form of 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 a goods company, let's say, it's trying to sell you, let's say, shoes. Instead of just showing the same ads for everybody on, say, national TV or online, how about we tailored this ad and show it to people, show one type of ad to people who are really interested in shoes. Maybe don't show an ad to people who are not interested in shoes or in these types of shoes. Like it for people who are not interested, it's almost like spam. They're not going to care. You're still going to pay for those ads or the companies that you're hiring to help you run those ads. Nothing's, nothing good is going to come out of it. And so we tried to build some form of behavioral targeting. Oh, are you interested? When are you interested in these things? And how can we model? It's almost like if, if people watch CSI or, or you know, the, the cop shows on TV, it's almost like profiling. How can I gather some data? It's publicly available and figure out, oh, you could be interested in this type of product. Let me show it to you. If you're not interested, I'm not going to show it to you anymore. But it's not just a matter of when and where and how old you are. It's actually a lot about interest. So that was the first company. The company has been public in the London Stock Exchange for close to five years, I believe. So it's been doing very, very well. And after I moved to the US in 2016, I, I partnered up with another local guy here in Chicago that I got to know. 
started uh, a second startup called Dormigo, now in the real estate space, but still same underlying technology of machine learning and modeling and how do you crunch a lot of data in a smart way. And we were designing a software that basically helped hotel chains, real estate, private equity companies figure out how much they should rent or lease their locations for. So if you're going to a hotel and you're saying it's going to cost $197 a night, why is it 197? Why is it not 194 or 185 or any other number for that matter? The answer is not always take the number higher. Like the, the a lot of products out there, especially in the hotels and apartments, like places that you rent to stay at or to live in, the higher the price doesn't necessarily mean the higher the revenue or the higher the profits are going to be for the owner. So how should these you know, large companies that hold thousands and thousands of places for rent, how should they price it correctly for them to make more money at the end of the day, but also for consumers to not necessarily pay more money because of mistakes? And What's an example? So I'll, I'll give you an example that I felt for a company that didn't work with us. I was renting in downtown Chicago an apartment in a high rise. At some point, they had, I don't know if they had a glitch in their system or whatever happened. All of my building, the rent bumped by about $600 for all of the apartments. In about 30 days, that building became vacant. Nobody renewed their leases. And if you were to ask them before they realized that this is happening, they would have told you, oh, no, there's market forces. You know, we're running comps versus the other buildings in the area, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't looking at the data. They were guessing, guesstimating. They were trying to figure out based on all sorts of comps, thinking that there are comparables. You're not always comparable and you shouldn't be subjective when you're making numbers decisions. It's a bunch of numbers. Crunch a bunch of data. If you're looking at the right data, you'll come up with a close approximation to where you should be. Now, there's no magical wand. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not God, even though I'm a believer. I don't believe that somebody can look at the screen and come up with the right number. But yeah. we were able to drive our customers' revenues and profits by anywhere from 20 to 50%. Um, just by changing the numbers, they still had guests if it's hotels, they still had renters if it's renters. It's just putting the right price at the right time and not just saying, oh, I'm renting my house for $2,000 a month. And if you don't want to pay $2,000 a month, then I'm going to wait for a couple of months. Doesn't make sense. Figure out what the right price in the market is and then, you know, find the right renter or, you know, vacationer to come over and stay with you. And so how were you guys able to do that in a way that not everybody else could? It's, it's kind of like what we're doing right now. You need to think about the simple solution and not overcomplicate things. I think the world right now, the world of data, you have a lot of startups that are looking at data, visualizing data, crunching data, coming up with all sorts of solutions. There's an abundance of data. You can always add more and more factors. It's not always the right thing to do. At the end of the day, the simple things work well, just like they have been for the last century. And, What's and, an example in your case there? What was the simple thing to do with the real estate? So, so we were looking, for example, on, I don't remember exactly, but I think seven or eight specific data points. And everybody else are looking at hundreds and thousands of data. I'll give you an example. You don't necessarily need to think about the weather or you don't have to look at the weather because weather is one form of science that is not very scientific. It's very, very hard to predict 
And a lot of companies, you know, even the giants in in the hotel and real estate industries, they're trying to figure out, okay, this, you know, this year is supposed to be hotter or colder than previous years. How is that supposed to change our revenue? You can completely ignore weather if you look at other factors, you know, occupancy. How many people book it on your website in your area, maybe on your properties or in other properties? Sometimes it's not just about the weather because, again, the weather is such a, not subjective, but it's a metric that changes all the time because none of us know how to predict it. So companies are basing decisions on something that is not, like you don't really know how close to the truth it's going to be. So why are you using it? Like you're using a data that, at least in the data world, it's called dirty data. It's not real substantiated, clean data that you can trust. I can trust if I see that somebody came in, booked a stay, or you know, rented an apartment for X amount of dollars for Y amount of months. That's a data point. I know that I can trust it. But there's a lot of other data points that just it, it's hard to, to take a look at. So how do you clean that up? How do you simplify this process to something that is tangible for people? How do you think about data that you can actually measure correctly and truthfully and use that in order to make decisions? Sure. So I'm interested, your time serving in intelligence at the Israeli Defense Forces, what kind of advantages do you think that gave you as an entrepreneur? That's a great question. I think that military service in general, not just obviously in the IDF and places that I've been at, it, it, it forced you to be disciplined. And it's not disciplined kind of like what you think about, you know, in, in military movies, you know, that you see that come out from Hollywood, but it forces you to work in a very big structure. You have to know how to collaborate with people. You have to know how to listen and how to hear what people are saying before you respond. And I think that that figuring out how to work with that structure is super helpful for entrepreneurs. Because as entrepreneurs, we're trying to solve a problem for other people, not just for ourselves. We're trying to solve a problem for your customers or for your consumers. If you can't listen, if you can't figure out how to navigate this huge structure of a world where there are so many different voices and so many different actors, it's going to be very hard for you to, to nail it down. I mean, as, as an entrepreneur, you have to have a lot of luck. Let, let's be honest. Even if you have the best solution ever, you have to be lucky. You have to be at the right place at the right time, not too much ahead of the curve, but not too late. And you need to know how to communicate correctly and efficiently and concisely with the other people who are listening. And I think that's one thing that the military is very tr- striving for, you know, regardless of where you are in the world. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, in my observation, so many folks from the special operations community and the intelligence community go into entrepreneurship and so many folks from, from big army don't. Any thoughts on that? Why that happens? I don't actually think it's true. Really? I, I, I think it's less visible. I think that some people are, you know, more attracted to technology and kind of the startup scene versus other people are being attracted to, you know, operations, you know, entrepreneurship or, or brick and mortar or, you know, supply chain or things that are a little bit more, more physical because that's their background. That's what they like or that's what they understand it. You know, I think for me coming out from technology, kind of being the geek that I was in high school, you know, technology makes sense because it speaks to me. I have great friends, you know, Marines or, or Army from, you know, from the U.S. forces who went ahead and, you know, started something that is brick and mortar, something that's physical, something that's not super technological because it doesn't appeal to them. You know, they don't like writing code. They like doing things on the ground. I have a very good friend who started a coffee company and they're super successful, very tasty coffee and very cheap. I feel it it doesn't necessarily hurt the way that you do entrepreneurship from one place in the service versus other places. 
But I do think that a lot of people are getting out of the service. It doesn't matter if they're 25 or 35 or 55, but they feel that they know how to drive decisions and they know how to make things happen. So I personally feel that the military, I owe the military a lot in, you know, in my success afterwards as a civilian, just because it taught me how to do things and how to do things well. Yeah. I'm just on your LinkedIn here. Can you talk about this? Mentor business advisor for 8200 sure. EISP sure. for people that are not familiar. Sure. Yeah. So, so one thing that I've decided to do after, or I would say uh, after my first startup went public, is that I'm devoting a little bit of my personal time to try to help other entrepreneurs, whether it's tech entrepreneurs or you know whatever entrepreneurship or or form of innovation or just a business owner. I want to devote a little bit of my time to kind of give back to community. And EISP 8200 is an Israeli accelerator that is completely voluntary for startup entrepreneurs, so specifically around tech, to try to help them get connections to people that would otherwise be a little bit harder for them to get to, whether it's investors, whether it's entrepreneurs that have been through it a couple of times that can share from their experience, you know, lawyers, accountants, anybody, anybody who can basically help you decide how to build a company in, in a better way or can give you advice. And it's a completely voluntary accelerator. So that's one place that I've been helping. But I've been getting messages on my LinkedIn multiple times a week from people who just want to get 10 minutes of my time or 30 minutes of my time to ask a question. I'm happy to help. I obviously need to kind of balance it out with my my current startup, which is a little bit hard. And sometimes my wife tells me that I should close my phone and you know spend time with her and my family, um, <laughs> which is very, very important, very hard to do as an entrepreneur to balance you know work-life balance. But I'm, I'm just happy to give back. So wherever yeah. I can, if people reach out to me, very happy to. So, and I understand it's not limited to 8,200 alumni. It's not, right? it's not. It's, it's a bunch of folks who came out of 8,200. I wasn't an 8,200 alumni myself, but it's a bunch of folks who just came out of it. And they were, let's say they were very good marketing people and were very creative on coming up with a brand new name. So we stuck with it. <laughs> well, and for people who don't know what 8,200 is, can you give just a little bit of background? Sure. I mean, I didn't serve in 8200, so it's a little bit hard for me to talk from within, but it's it's one of the more famous intelligence units in the Israeli military. And most of the entrepreneurs, at least in the distant past, if you think about the 90s and the early 200s, you know, with the dot-com bubble, most of the entrepreneur, the Israeli entrepreneurs came from, you know, from that unit. But there's a lot who didn't. And I would say today, I think it's, it's, it's a very good brand to have on your resume, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs who, you know, came from infantry and air force and any other places. Yeah, that's great. Well, what's, let's go a different direction thinking about your business today. When it comes to getting the word out that this program is even available, you know, in, in the jurisdictions you're at, what does your sales and marketing look like? So right now we're mostly focusing obviously on, on online and things that we can drive from data. But we're trying to combine, I would say, online and offline. We don't have door-to-door salespeople, first of all, because of COVID. And we started during COVID. So just like I don't want anybody to knock on my door, I'm not going to knock on anybody else's door. But how can we combine a lot of data and figure out where our target customers want to see us? Some people want to see us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, things of that nature. Others don't. Other ones to read about us, you know, on, you know, online news or media outlets. Some people are used to old fashioned, so we'll send them, you know, letters and things like that. But I don't want to be a spammer. So it's a lot about the targeting. How do you reach the right people? 
And I would say we're, we were very fortunate. Most of our customers came from referrals. Their friends heard about it and signed up and were very happy. Their neighbors, their colleagues, and the words have just been passed around. So we were very fortunate, you know, in that sense. So how are you, how are you discovering how they want to, you know, if this person is better targeted, you know, traditional media versus digital media? It's a lot about gathering public data, not necessarily public as in, you know, Facebook and things like that, but there are, you know, data sources that are being shared publicly, or you can tap into by paying a little bit of money into for us to figure out, are you more likely or less likely to care about green? Some communities and some people care more about green or renewables than others. Are you more tech savvy? Will you be able to sign up online? Or should we send you a letter to, to get you to sign up? Because you know, we have a, a, a good group of elderly people who told us up front, like, we really care about this. We want to sign up. I don't have an email. Don't send anything to me to my email because I don't even know how to open it. And I mean, I, I, I feel you know, very close to it because I was helping my grandmother and grandfather you know, with their internet and things like that. So we're trying to figure out what people like and how people like to act. And, you know, we'll, we'll give you the options. If you want to sign up over the phone, you want to call yeah. us and sign up over the phone, that's okay. You want to sign up online yourself, that's also fine. You want us to send you a letter, that's also okay. You know, we're, we're trying to be open and kind of more tailored to people. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of people today selling data. When, you, when you're thinking about the companies that you have faith in that you're actually willing to subscribe to, which ones do you feel like are better than the other ones? What do you mean as a consumer? No, for, for you, as your business is trying okay. to make decisions and you're, you're buying that public data, which, which companies do you think are the higher credibility ones to buy data from? I would say we're, we're mostly looking at, you know, most of the data that we're buying is not, it's aggregated data. It's not data for, you know, Aviv Shalgi likes this or is signed up for this company mm-hmm. or, you know, just Larson. It's, it's, you know, more communities or streets or cities or things of that nature. But then how do we cross-reference things so it doesn't look like, oh, in Chicago, you have a population that likes something, but something that's a little bit more granular. I think for me personally, it's super important to stay credible, but also keep people's privacy. So we only contract, you know, the really large public companies if it's, you know, data that's just not publicly available, you know, through the government or something like that. Because I don't want to deal with somebody who, I don't know, hacked your computer or hacked your social media profile in order to get some data point. That's just me. I prefer to to stumble and have a little bit of a more difficult road on my marketing and sales side than just to risk, you know, my ethics and, and how I perceive the world. Yeah. Um, so are you buying like stuff from like the credit bureaus or wh- like wh- which companies do you, if somebody wants to do more of that, like I'm considering that for my business or something, who, who who should I look at buying stuff from? There's a lot of financial companies that that have all sorts of analyses on you know whether it's the credit bureaus for credit data or you know the 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 other financial companies in the world or research companies of the world. I prefer not to name anybody, so not to you know not not to uh, uh, mention anybody didn't, didn't give me permission to do so. But there's a lot of research companies out there that are doing all sorts of analyses, you know, in, in, in demographics that are not just citywide or statewide, but things that are more down to earth. There's a lot of people who, you know, volunteer to these types of services as well. Um, volunteer or they get paid some sort of a gift card of some sort and they're willing to give out their data because they want to get a better service. 
And that's one thing that, you know, we, we should all think about. Everybody's complaining about advertising. And does this company steals my data or that company takes my data? I personally believe that each person needs to decide between themselves how much data they're willing to give out. Because the more data you give out, you know, th that is tangible data. Again, interests, behaviors, things that you like, things that you don't like. The better the advertising is going to be on all, all of the platforms. You're going to get things that are more tailored to you and you're going to get discounts for things that you like when they're on sale and things of that nature. So personally, I'm okay with giving my data as well. And so we're mostly going to places where people either volunteered to give out that data or, you know, or, or we're able to, to make some sort of a, a sophisticated analysis to figure out who likes what. Sure. So I'm thinking about that for, you know, for our real estate investment fund right? Mm -hmm. There's, there are certain parts of the country that um, have different motivations behind their investing, right? And, right. and there's research companies that have figured that out, that if you want to appeal to folks in this state, you know, this type of messaging is more appealing versus that state, right? Mm -hmm. My next question is, so if somebody does want to do, you know, they want to just, they don't want to just keep throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> they want to get a little more sophisticated. Yep. Um, when it comes to the principles of cross-referencing this data and actually making sense of it, what's what's a tip that you have for for an entrepreneur who's new to that? So I would I would go back again to you know to our brand. Keep it simple. You know the 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 reason I chose the word solar simplified wasn't you know because I thought it's a cool name. Um, it's a very long name, but because I personally believe in what I've seen in my previous two startups as well. You have to keep things simple. So if you're a new entrepreneur and you have data background, you know how to run regression models and things like that, good for you. Most entrepreneurs don't know how to do that. And I didn't know how to do that when I first started. You know, I kind of had to learn along the way. But get started with the simple things. If you're thinking about your consumer, regardless of which industry it is or what product, you know, you're trying to sell, try to think of who is my target audience? What do these people like? What did they, you know, don't don't fall into the demographics, you know, pool of, oh, it's a male 25 to 35 with this type of income or that type of credit score. Think about what's their behavior? What do they like to do outside of what you're trying to sell? What's their affinity to this product? What's going to appeal to them? And from there, try to figure out, okay, I need to look at this data source or that data source. And can I, can I buy something that is granular enough for me to cross-reference on, let's say, an Excel spreadsheet? Or something that I can learn, you know, in 30 minutes if I'm Googling or, or looking on a movie at YouTube. But it starts from the basic. It's not from the principles of, you know, simplifying the problem. Because it's very easy to get into an analysis paralysis situation where there's too much data. I don't know what to do with it. And, okay, I'm just, I'm just not going to do anything. And, you know, there's a lot of research about that. If you, if you give people uh, too much information, they don't know how to necessarily process it. Sure. I mean, you look at direct response marketing in the past mm -hmm. before they had computers to crunch everything. And it's like, hey, you know, if you can buy a list of people who have, you know, subscribed to this real estate investment newsletter in the last 30 days or, you know, have purchased this real estate investment right. book in the last 90 days, that's probably a list that I would be more interested in for my right. marketing, right? It right. sounds like it's just a more sophisticated version of the same principle. Am I, am I on base there? I would say yes and no. If you can get your hands on that data on very specific industry or product data, that's awesome. Good for you. 
I think the world has gone to a little bit of a more simplified yet sophisticated place of can I make it an, an, an inference or, an, or can I get an insight from tangent industries or tangent products? Sure, maybe you're not interested in real estate. You didn't buy a real estate book or didn't sign up for a real estate newsletter. But I did figure out that you, you know, you just took a mortgage on your house. That's publicly available data. Or you just bought a new house or, you know, or, or something related to that's publicly available data that's not exactly what you're looking for. So is a person who just bought a house, are they interested in investing or not? I don't know. It's, it's kind of not my field, but I'm sure it's a, not, it's a data point that can help you understand people recently bought versus people who didn't recently buy. Who's more likely? So how do you think about other well, types of home, repercussions? Homeowner or not is probably right. an indicator. Do of you course. know what I mean? Of course. Right? Yeah. Pretty basic, but... Very basic. But, do uh, you own a car or do you not own a car? Could be another good inference, which is not even from the real estate space. It shows you are people willing to spend money or do they have money available for these things? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I, don't, I, I can't tell you if the correlation is perfect, but it could be a good indicator. Definitely. And then when it comes to marketing software, do you guys... Mm-hmm. Do you like, you know, HubSpot or some of the the kind of marketing technology companies? Do you build your own? What do you guys like? I mean, there are a lot of really awesome marketplaces and, and online forums where you can put, you know, your software. I think for me, the software that, that we've been developing in, in all of my three companies have never been for the sake of software. It was always for the sake of solving a problem. And it helps simplify the marketing because I'm not just throwing, you know, on, on product hunt, hey, I have a new product or in HubSpot, I have a new product. How about you guys check it out and hope that somebody's going to use it? Tailoring the technology to solve a very, very specific problem that is a little bit more down to earth. So, you know, with my first company, how do you show an ad to the right person? We'll run the technology for you. You don't have to run the technology. Same goes today. Do you want to save money? Do you want to help support, you know, the fight against climate change or drive more renewables or drive job creation in your area? Sign up with us. We'll take care of the background. You don't have to deal with the software. So that's my perspective. Yeah. Well, listen, what's, I know we're kind of winding down here. If people want to learn more, they want to connect with you, where are the best places? So first and foremost, solarsimplify.com. Go to the website, leave us your details. If you're interested, you can check if we're in your area. Or if you start the sign-up flow, if you leave us your zip code, we'll tell you if we have any service in your area or not. And you know, we're expanding to, to places where we see customers that, that want this. So wherever we see you know, new customers coming in, delivering their information, you know, that's where we're going to go next. If people want to connect with me personally to ask questions about startups or entrepreneurship or owning a business and they want to run an idea or ask for some advice, feel free to reach out to me over LinkedIn. I accept everybody's invitations and I try to respond to as many people as I can. I love it. Well, maybe to finish off here, what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? I think that, well, there, there are so many. I'm trying to pick just one. Just one of them. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we, we've had a discussion about entrepreneurship, so I'll, st- I'll stick with the entrepreneurship factor. One of my, my angel investors in, in my first startup back in Israel told me, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to think about who really, really wants this product. Not who you're trying to sell this to and pitch it to them. Try to figure out 
who are you really solving like a tough problem that they're really struggling with? And try to think who also makes the decision because sometimes it's not the right, it's not the same person. So I would say that's that's kind of one piece of advice that I was given and was super helpful for me because the decision maker is not always the consumer. It's not always the person who's going to use whatever you're selling. And that's super, super important for decision making around marketing and sales and how to pitch your product and things of that nature. If you'll allow me, I have just another one. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people say, you know, in entrepreneurship, if you listen to, to you know, gurus and, you know, mentor, famous mentors and things of that nature, a lot of people tell you, you know, you have to be ready. You have to jump into the water. Like you have to start swimming. You'll figure it out along the way. At least personally, never worked for me. You have to research your market. You have to ask questions. You know, there's the phrase that you have two, year, two, two ears and one mouth. Listen, ask questions to people you think would be your customers, even before you get started. Ask and try to see what is the real pain point. Most of the problems that all of the entrepreneurs, tech, non-tech, traditional, doesn't matter, are solving. It's, you know, most of us don't invent things from scratch. Most of us solve a problem that is not rocket science. Nobody's Einstein. Or There's a very few number of people in the industry that are Einsteins and are reinventing physics or biology or chemistry or whatever that is. So try to figure out what is the underlying pain, not just what's on, you know, what, not just what's on the service. And, and I, I usually like to give the, you know, the Ford example of, you know, if, if people asked, if Ford asked people back, way back when, what do they want? They want a faster horse. They don't want a car. Same goes for, you know, Steve Jobs with the iPhone. You would have asked people if they want, what do they want? They want a different, a different type of, you know, of a simple phone, not necessarily a smartphone. So try to figure out the pain and then think of how do you solve it and not come up with the solution first. And then what problem am I solving? Yeah, that's great advice. I think, I think it takes humility though, to, as an entrepreneur, to slow down and, and like pump the brakes on the like, oh yeah, this is for sure what people want. I'm sure, you know, and, and to slow down and ask and like, and I guess like, it's, it's not just asking, it's like asking from a mindset willing to be wrong. Right. You know, like, I think a lot of us have asked a lot of questions to confirm what we already know, right. Rather than, rather than like asking to discover our blind spots. Right. Right. Looking for the exceptions, looking for this ideal customer that don't fit what we think we know about them. Right. Right. We, we often are looking for confirming evidence. Right. It's, it's a lot easier. It's a lot nicer to know, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm smart. Oh, I'm going to be successful. Things of that nature. And, and you know, we're all people, you know, we're all, we're all subjected to these biases and that's okay. But if you can be aware of those biases and try to frame the questions differently, try to make sure people punch holes in what you're offering, you'll probably be more successful in the long run because you figure out those pitfalls before they happen, not you know, when you're on the edge of the cliff trying to save yourself from falling. Yeah, I love it. Well, well, thanks for doing this and congrats on all the success. Thank you so much. And, and thank you very much for inviting me, Jess. It's yeah, been a pleasure. Bye, everyone.